You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. more of a response when Jason said the buds are bringing barbecue than I did just now when I, when I said good morning. Um, if, if your life is filled with chaos and messiness and brokenness and hurt and things aren't as they should be at times, then the answer is yes, you're in the perfect place. Um, we're all a mess in this room. Um, we're all sinners in need of a great Savior. And so as you come this morning, my hope is that you're coming going, what do you, what do you believe? What do we believe as the church? What are we seeking to engage in and be about? And not just at a cognitive level, but to see seep down into the very um, seat of our affections. And so we want to engage that this morning, that we do believe that Jesus loves to redeem messy people and messy stories, turning them into something beautiful and redemptive. And so we're going to engage that this morning. But before we jump in, I want to start with a question this morning. And the question is this, are we better off for gathering in this place? Are we better off for gathering in this place? As we come in week in and week out, when you come and gather with the church, um, is, it, is it helpful? Um, we get this morning to peer in on the earliest account of uh, the Lord's Supper uh, in the history of the church. And it's not quite what, what you would expect, especially um, looking at a church that was founded only a couple decades after the crucifixion of Jesus. You would think they, they wouldn't have gotten off the beaten path quite yet. And yet we're gonna encounter something very different this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians will be in verses 17 through 34 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats in front of you nearby. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, you can have that Bible for free. Church is a gift to you. We're not gonna hunt you down. It's yours. We want you to be the owner of a Bible. Uh, We're not gonna read the passage up front for the sake of time. So let me just pray and we'll dive right in and get to work this morning. God, I pray that we would become keenly aware of just what Jesus has done for us, uh, who he is, uh, what he suffered on behalf of those in need of redemption and restoration to our creator. Um, God, I pray that uh, this morning as we look at a passage on communion, that coming out of this morning's sermon, that we would experience one of the most powerful communions that we've experienced as a church in the history of Cross Point, Peachtree City. I pray that um, we would grow in an awareness of your character, God, who you are, growing in an awareness of uh, just how deep the sin and unbelief problem runs in our hearts, um, but as a result, that the cross would just loom larger in our lives, and we would marvel uh, at you, Jesus. So, um, Holy Spirit, would you, would you do what only you can do? Would you wake us up this morning, um, both physically and spiritually, so that we might engage in your very revelation of yourself? We ask these things of you, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the the way Paul lays things out is he begins with a rebuke in the first half dozen verses. If you look at verse 17, he says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Um, If you go back to last week, we see Paul commending the church, though they hadn't got it 
perfectly right. Um, he commended them uh, in terms of their, their living out this design of, of gender distinction and roles that God's created us to live out as image bearers to some extent. But yet this morning he says, I can't commend you at all in terms of where we're about to go. He says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. This is the worst thing that you could possibly say about a Christian gathering. That when you assemble, it would have been better that you had not gotten out of bed in the first place than that you did put on your clothes, got in your car, uh, spent a couple bucks in gas money, and walked into the, the context of the church gathered. It, it must have broken Paul's heart, because if you think about it, if you go back to the story in Acts, Paul was one of the ones who founded this church, and yet now he's saying, it'd be better if you just stayed home. This is the last thing that we want Jesus to say about us, that's for sure, that you're worse off for coming into this auditorium on the corner of Kelly and Dividend every, every Sunday when you gather. And so this is a litmus test for us uh, that we should engage quite often to see whether we're on track as a gathered body of believers. Uh, we should ask these kind of questions. Is Jesus made much of? Does the gospel saturate our time together? Are the scriptures treated as supremely authoritative? Do we love Jesus and one another more as a result of our time together? Do we feel like we missed a meal when we missed a Sunday? Spiritually, are we hungry? Do we, or do we long to get back together with our brothers and sisters in Christ? And lastly, is God doing something in our presence as we, as we gather? Would we say that God's up to something in our midst? Paul says in verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul gets to the heart of why it's worse that they got out of bed. It's this divisive nature of the church in Corinth. Going back to chapter one, it's been the issue all along, right? I follow Peter. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I don't follow any of those guys. I follow Christ and Christ alone. Well, I think that, that you should be single and celibate. Well, I think that people should get married. I think this is how we should handle church discipline issues. Well, I think we should handle it in a very different way. And so there's great divisiveness happening in the church in Corinth. And now Paul's addressing that he sees that even in the midst of the context of when they gather. So they're not even good at, at doing the thing of, I'm going to be divisive and bitter Monday through Saturday, but I'm going to put a, on a good Christian front when I wake up on Sunday and come hang out with the church gathered. They're not even good enough to do that. They can't even get that kind of put on a mask thing right. And so Paul addresses them that when you gather, there's great divisiveness. And what Paul's essentially asking is, how can it be that a group of people threaded together by Jesus can be so divisive? Going back to the Why Church series, I threw out this identity statement of the church, and let me bring us back to that. I said this, the identity statement of the church is that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, finding our righteousness to be lacking. Thus, we trust in a righteousness not our own. We trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, gifted to us by grace through faith. This is our common thread. That the gospel is supposed to create unity. That grace is supposed to level the playing field. Both Jews and Greeks. Both men and women. Both slave and free man. Both poor and rich. The gospel is meant to bind people together. That we share a bloodline through Jesus' shed blood. 
One church historian describes the earliest Christian congregations in this way. He says this, within their own limits, they had solved the social problem which baffled Rome and baffles Europe still, Christians. They had lifted woman to her rightful place, we talked about that last week, restored the dignity of labor, abolished beggary, and drawn the sting of slavery. The secret of the revolution is that the selfish, selflessness excuse me, selfishness of race and class was forgotten in the supper of the Lord and a new basis for society was found in love of the visible image of God in men for whom Christ died. That there was a new playing field and the basis of that was love for image bearers of God for whom Jesus spilled his blood. And so people were brought together in great unity though they were very diverse. And the same is true up to our day that uh, if you look around, we're a very diverse group of people. There are very few places in this community that we would all find ourselves hanging out together. And yet we come together as the church unified under the banner of the person and work of Jesus. We share his bloodline. I love how William Barclay says it in his commentary. He says, a church where social and class distinctions exist is no true church at all. A real church is a body of men and women united to each other because all are united to Christ. And yet Paul says in verse 20, when you come together, uh, Corinthian Christians, it's not the Lord's Supper at all that you eat. You can call it the Lord's Supper all day, but this supper uh, that, that you gather for and the Lord whose name you pronounce as a part of that knows nothing of the division that exists among you guys. He says, verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Like Paul just breaks out in the middle of writing. Are you kidding? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I, I will not. It'd probably be helpful to know that our version of communion, communion is very different than the early church. So we, we have the bread and we break it and you can see there, there are a couple of loaves represented here that have been broken and a couple of cups represented. And so we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. But for the church in Corinth, what they would do is they would gather uh, for a great banquet. They were, those, these banquets were known as agape feasts, and, and they would gather, and part of that feast would include an observance of the Lord's Supper as an element of this great gathering. So just imagine this massive potluck, they're coming together, and part of that is to partake in the Lord's Supper. And so there are two possible things that are happening here. One, either the well-to-do were being given a first pass at the potluck, and so rather than ladies first, it was wealthy first. Um, whatever the bottom line of your bank account is determines where you are in line. And so they were overindulging and leaving nothing for the poor, right? We, we've all been there. You've, you've been to a gathering. Somebody orders pizza. You start doing the math, dividing out the number of people, determining, all right, I think we all get two slices here, maybe three. And then you look ahead in the line when you're toward the back of it and some bonehead built up, a, you know, the leaning tower, you know, on their plate of like six or seven slices. And you know, you're not gonna get to eat because that person did that. That, that could be one interpretation. Another possibility is that um, everyone was bringing what he or she had to the feast and rather than sharing, people are eating what they brought. We, we do this in the context of our community groups um, for simplicity's sake. Nothing wrong with that in our context if it's easier to bring your own dinner to a community group gathering. That's okay. But in this context, the, the rich were bringing much and were gorging themselves and getting drunk on what they brought. And the poor brought little to nothing and were starving in the presence of good food and drink. 
Those are the two possibilities. And either way, it really doesn't matter what the interpretation is. Either way, it's a slap in the face to Jesus and his cross. Leon Morris, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, what happened in Corinth was a travesty of love. The wealthier members of the congregation clearly provided most of the food, and this could have been a marvelous expression of Christian love and unity, but it was degraded into the very opposite. The rich ate and drank in their cliques. There was no real sharing, no genuinely common meal. And Paul goes so far as to say, do you despise the church of God? That to create factions in the church, cliques in the church, is to despise the church, according to the Apostle Paul. That to live in the land of the self-absorbed rather than the self-sacrificing is to despise the church. That, that every person whom Jesus spilled his blood for is precious to him. And, and that should be the case for us as well. That when we look out on people who profess to know and love Jesus, that we would say they're precious to us as well. Because Jesus spilled his blood for them. We're one body with many members as Paul's going to get to in chapter 12. And we'll get there soon enough. We should seek unity. We should seek to sacrifice for the good of one another. A couple of questions I think are helpful in crossing the cultural bridge to our modern day context would be this. Am I championing unity in this church body as opposed to being divisive, as opposed to creating factions? And, and let me be really clear here. I don't, I don't think this means that uh, the question becomes, am I best friends with everyone in in this local church. I don't even know that that's possible. And if God does a work and he continues to grow this church, then it's gonna become even more unrealistic for, for that to be uh, the litmus test to this. I think the question really is, am I divisive at a heart level? Do I create division and disunity in the local church? Or am I a champion of, of unity in the local church? And then secondly, is my bent toward consumerism or contribution. In other words, am I gathering to consume like the wealthy were in the church in Corinth coming in? I'm just here to take what I can for myself, or am I gathering to contribute, to share? In other words, the question is uh, not what's in it for me, what can I get um, from the church at the expense of other people, but rather what can I bring to the church that would edify the church and make much of Jesus? And Paul determines that the best way to, to refocus the church, and I think it's true for us this morning, is to take them back to the upper room with Jesus and his disciples on the night that Jesus was betrayed. In verses 23 through 26, you get this remembrance. Paul says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Very famous words here. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That the establishment of the Lord's Supper, one of the two sacraments of the church along with baptism, originated with Jesus himself. You see it in three of the four gospel accounts, Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, Jesus is, is with the boys. He's in the upper room. He's celebrating the Passover meal. If you recall, going back to the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And uh, God called Moses to lead them out of enslavement. And yet Pharaoh was not for Moses' plan and ultimately God's plan. Uh, Pharaoh said, you want me to let the Israelites go and to stop making bricks, which are being used to build monuments to my glory so that they can now go out into the wilderness and make much of other deities, another deity. 
not going to happen. And, and so uh, in his divine providence, God establishes uh, in demonstrating his power, a series of plagues upon Egypt tend to be exact. And the plagues go from bad to worse with, with the final plague uh, being the death of the firstborn son. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to lead you guys out of Egypt. And here's how it's going to happen. I want you to take a lamb and, and not just any lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish. God's perfect. And thus he demands a perfect uh, blemish-free sacrifice. And God says, I want you to kill that lamb without blemish. I want you to smear its blood on the doorposts, and I want you to eat that meat, which sounds really strange, right? Um, but God says that lamb is gonna act as your substitute. The judgment's coming on the land. No one's exempt, including Israel. And it's either the blood of the lamb without blemish or the blood of your firstborn son. And the Israelites do as God commands. And that night, God strikes down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, uh, those whose front door is not covered by the blood of this lamb without blemish. And so the Israelites are spared in this moment and as a result are led out of Egypt. We call that event the great exodus of the Old Testament. And in response to that, they, they uh, set up an, an annual celebration known as the Passover meal. Maybe you've heard of, of uh, Passover Jesus, as he sits with his disciples celebrating Passover in the upper room on the night he's to be betrayed, he's instituting the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul is pointing back to. Jesus is saying in this moment with the disciples, I'm the true Passover lamb. Like the Israelites, judgment is coming upon the land and no one is exempt. That we deserve the penalty for sin, all of us, that penalty being death. And it's either us or the unblemished lamb of God, Jesus himself. This is the language of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died in our place. He died our death. He bore our sins. He bore the penalty for sin. He bore our punishment. He bled and died so that we could go free. He was a ransom for us. That as God saw the blood of the lamb on the door in Egypt that night, in terms of those Israelite homes, so he also sees the blood of the lamb, Jesus, as we trust in Christ by faith, spilled out for us so that we can be freed and restored to God. That's what Peter means when he says in 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see that connecting point to the Old Testament? And here's the crazy thing. If you think about what's happening in the upper room, this is a moment of great irony. Okay, the Lord's Supper is instituted on the night that Jesus is to be betrayed by Judas. That in a moment where we see man at his most vile, his most sinful, his most wicked, turning over God the Son for some coinage, in that moment, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which puts on display the love of God for sinners. That Man at his most sinful and the love of God for sinners collide in the upper room that night. That's the gospel, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that, that we uh, get ourselves in, into a spot of, of uh, moral superiority so that God would then look at us and, and find favor with us. It's that while we were still sinners, Jesus looked out and said, you just might be worse than Judas, and yet I deeply love you and will spill my blood for you. I don't know how you feel, but I feel that way. I mean, I betrayed Jesus for far less than 30 pieces of silver, which was Judas's exchange. When I read this account, I see the love of God put on display in a way that, that blows my mind. 
The grace of God is unbelievable. What about the significance of the Lord's Supper? If that's where it was instituted, what's the significance of it? If you look at verse 24, we're told that uh, Jesus, when he had given thanks and had taken the bread, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That he wants us to remember, remember, remember. And, and, And here's the reality. You can't make the gospel more palatable. You can't somehow water down the gospel in such a way that it's then hip or cool. If you've managed to make the gospel cool, you might want to reassess it and see, is it the gospel anymore? Because the reality is, if you're, if you're proclaiming the gospel, at some point you have to get to the slaughtering of the Son of God. You have to mention the crucified Jesus. You have to mention his horrific suffering and death Uh, as he endured all of that on a mission to save sinners. That we oftentimes treat the crucifixion like a bad car accident. We just wanna like tuck it away in the recesses of our minds rather than actually dwell on it. And yet Jesus says, no, I want you to remember and keep remembering and don't stop remembering. Remember often. And so I want us to do that this morning. I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about just what it is that Jesus endured for us. If he wants us to remember his broken body and his shed blood, what is it that Jesus went through for our sake? And so for the next few minutes, I would say we're probably going to move into the realm of a rated R depiction because crucifixion is not something pretty, but I, th- I think and I hope that coming out of that, um, it'll be even more powerful as we see just who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So let's go there for just a few minutes. Crucifixion it was invented by the Persians about 500 years before Jesus came. It was perfected by the Romans, which means that they figured out how to uh, extract the most pain out of a human being and to prolong death for as long as you possibly could by way of this form of martyrdom wasn't outlawed until uh, the rule of the uh, rule of the emperor Constantine uh, about 400 years after Jesus came. So you're talking about a, a millennium in which crucifixion existed and was a primary means of uh, putting people to death, um, namely criminals for the most part. It was considered a horrific form of death. Roman philosopher Cicero asked that decent Roman citizens not speak of the cross because it was too disgraceful a subject for the ears of decent people. So don't even talk about it. It's not even up for discussion. If you fast forward through human history, um, in in Hitler's day, uh, German soldiers crucified Jews under his command by running bayonets through their body parts rather than nails. If you fast forward to present day, crucifixion still continues in Sudan, one of the most dangerous places to go as a Christian on planet earth to take the gospel. And yet there are Christians there this very day who deeply love Jesus and are pointing people to him in the context of that horrific culture. The crazy thing is this, if you think about it, um, I, I, would, I would venture to say there are probably some that are wearing crosses around their necks this very morning, right? We, we adorn our bodies with crosses, the walls of our homes, and that's good. It, it's, it's the most beautiful symbol in human history if we understand what it symbolizes. But I don't think most people do, and it, so it makes it really odd, right? It's just, this is pretty, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear it, I'm going to put it in my home somewhere, um, American satirist Lenny Bruce says this. He says, if Jesus had been killed 20 years ago, Catholic school children would be wearing little electric chairs around their necks instead of crosses. Think, think about 
how that puts it into perspective, the reality of what the cross symbolizes. That, that if you look at what Jesus went through, really coming out of the upper room that night, it begins. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and we find him there in Luke 22, where we're told that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a condition known as hematidrosis. Um, it's a condition in which severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down capillaries in the sweat glands, causing one to sweat blood. It's a real condition. And this condition, if you think about what's to come, would have caused the skin to become more fragile and sensitive by the time the scourging began, the flogging began. If you fast forward, we see Jesus enduring this in Matthew 27. We're told, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, the criminal, the murderer, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Roman scourging usually consisted of roughly 39 lashes using a cat of nine tails, which was a whip with braided strands of leather. And as a part of these strands, uh, there were metal balls that were built into them that were meant to tenderize the skin like you would tenderize a piece of meat. On the end of those strands were shards of bone and metal, which would rip flesh and muscle away from bone. Same way that you would eat a chicken wing, okay? You can't make the gospel more palatable. You see where I'm going with this? The flogging would have gone all the way from the shoulders to the back, to the rear, to the back of the legs, which is why we're told in Isaiah 52, 14, that many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You wouldn't have even been able to pick Jesus out in a lineup by the time they got done with him in terms of, of actually knowing who he is based on appearance. He was so bruised, so swollen, so bloodied, and we haven't even gotten to the cross yet. And then came the crown of thorns, Matthew 27, 28. We're told they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. You see the irony here? Like they're mocking him saying, king of the Jews, hail to you. In a, in a very condescending way because they don't even realize that not only is the king of the Jews standing before them, but the very king of creation is standing before them. So they put a crown of thorns on his head as a part of the mocking. Sweat and blood flowed down his face into his eyes. His hair and beard were most likely a bloody, matted mess at this point. And then he would have likely experienced hypovolemic shock. Hypo meaning low, emic meaning blood. So we're talking about low blood, a great amount of blood loss. The heart races to try to pump blood that isn't there. The blood pressure drops, causing the person to faint or collapse, which is why we're told in Matthew 27, 32, that as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry Jesus's cross because he couldn't take it the rest of the way based on what he was enduring at this point. Another uh, symptom of hypovolemic shock is that the kidneys stop producing urine to try to maintain fluid in the body. And so the person becomes very thirsty as the body seeks to replenish fluids. This is why we're told in John 19 that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
and a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. You see the fulfilling of scripture all along. The Old and New Testaments all both point to Jesus as the hero from cover to cover of your Bible. It's all about Jesus. He's led up the hill, was nailed to his cross. We're told uh, historically that the Romans used five to seven inch nails uh, similar to a railroad spike in, in our day. These spikes were driven through the wrists. Um, you couldn't drive them through the hands because uh, the human body's weight couldn't hold itself up. And so they would drive it through the wrist, which in the language of Jesus' day was considered part of the hand. And they would drive it through what's known as the median nerve, the largest nerve extending to the hand. That nerve would have been crushed. This is crazy to me, okay? There was no existing word to describe that pain, so they made one up. And that word in our language is the word excruciating, which means uh, literally out of the cross, excruci, crucified, excruciating. Nails were driven through Jesus's feet in a similar manner. As he hung on the cross, his arms would have been stretched out so far that his shoulders would have been taken out of joint, which is why we're told in Psalm 22, I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. Again, another prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus. And ultimately, um, most historians and scholars would argue that Jesus died a death by asphyxiation, that, that once he was nailed to the cross, uh, the, the victim essentially dies a, a slow death. The chest is forced into an inhaled position, and, and to exhale, you, you have to push up on your feet to release tension uh, on the muscles and the diaphragm, which would cause the, the nail to tear through the feet would also force the victim to run his back up against the splintered wooden cross after the scourging had taken place. And ultimately, Jesus would have gone through what's known as respiratory acidosis, that as breathing slows down, carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to, to increase, which leads to an irregular heartbeat, which ultimately leads to death. You go, that sounds horrific, Jamie. And it was. And here's the crazy thing. I don't think that that's the worst of what Jesus went through. Um, oftentimes we, we focus our attention on the physical aspect of Jesus' death, and we should. It most certainly matters that without the physical death of Jesus, we have no hope. I love this quote from Athanasius in his great work on the incarnation. He says this, Jesus accepted death at the hands of men, thereby completely to destroy it in his own body. That the death of death came at the death of Christ on his cross. That's good news. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, oh death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Paul taunts death the same way that the Roman soldiers taunted Jesus. I think we have to take into account his physical death, but we also have to take into account something more that took place on the cross. This is why I think Jesus sweated drops of blood in the garden that night. Not because he saw the nails coming, not because he saw the crown of thorns coming. When he cried out in Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I don't think it had anything to do with what we've discussed up to this point. I think it has everything to do, going back to last week, with this eternal dance between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that had been going on since before time began. There was this intra-Trinitarian love happening between Father, Son, and Spirit, and it had never been interrupted. And yet for the first time, Jesus realizes that 
the father is going to have to turn his back on me. I'm going to have to step off the dance floor for the first time in the history of the world and even before the foundations of the world, going back into eternity past. And Jesus is crying out in the garden, not the disruption of this eternal dance. I've never known separation from you, Father. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as you move forward to his crucifixion, that Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath all the way down to its dregs, that he saved us from God's wrath by absorbing the wrath of God in our place, that he took our guilty verdict upon himself so that we might be declared righteous before God, that he was shamed and defiled so that we might be cleansed from sin, that he became a curse so that we might be forever blessed, that he became separated from the Father so that we might be adopted by the Father as sons and daughters of the living God, that he experienced alienation so that we might be reconciled to our creator. That's what I think caused Jesus to sweat drop of blood in the garden of Gethsemane that night. The wrath of God to come, the declaration of guilty though he was without sin, the shaming and defiling, becoming a curse, experiencing separation from the Godhead. You hear that and you go, what's the good news? What makes that good news? Why should we wear crosses around our neck? Why should we adorn our homes with, with crosses? Why should we make this the greatest symbol in all of human history and elevate it to its rightful place? And the answer is found in verse 24, that when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. That word for is one of the most crucial prepositions that exists in the human language as it applies to the gospel. That the word for is the driving force of the gospel. That Jesus went through all of this for you. That we could fly through a litany of scriptures. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Romans 4, 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Romans 5, 8, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That it's one thing to believe that, that God so loved the world and that's a crucial piece of it, but it's an altogether different thing to believe that Jesus loves me, this I know. And that's not a childish statement, that's the gospel. Do you believe that? Like when you sit with that phrase, what does it do? At a heart level, at a mind level, to sit with those words, Jesus loves me. He died for me personally. I love the way John Murray puts it. He says this, God was pleased to set his invincible and everlasting love upon a countless multitude, and it is the determinate purpose of this love that the atonement secures. That when you take communion, week in and week out, you're meant to experience the deep love of God for you. That one of the best practices you can do is to just sit with the words week in and week out as you prepare to take communion. Jesus loves me, this I know. It's an unbelievable statement. And there's even more good news. In verse 25, we're told that uh, Jesus took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, to Israel, they screwed it up. So have we. 
Um, They broke the former covenant that was made with God. They needed the new covenant to be established. And so uh, Jeremiah 31 tells us uh, that God says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the Passover, the Exodus. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Here's the new covenant. Listen to this. Notice the promises for you in this. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. No more tablets of stone. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be your God and you will be mine. That's what God says to you and me today. This morning, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, that we can know God, the one who made us, who designed us for his glory and our joy. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God says, I'll forgive all your sin. Past tense, present tense, future tense, all of it wiped out and forgiven by the blood of Christ. How are all these promises secured through the shedding of Jesus' blood, through his death. His death establishes this new covenant. That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. When you take communion, you're not only meant to experience the deep love of Christ for you, Jesus loves me, this I know, you're also meant to lean on the assurance that all the promises of the covenant are yours. They're yours. No one can take those from you. It's like a good education. No one can, can rip that away from you. That in participating in communion, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. We're made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. He says, remember, remember, remember. Don't stop remembering who I am and what I've done for you. Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is why we take communion every week here. Um, It's an open-handed issue. There are churches that take communion quarterly, monthly. We do it every week simply based on verse 26. As often as you do it, you proclaim Jesus' death until he returns to set everything right. That the Lord's Supper is the word of the gospel made visible. For everyone looking in who comes into our midst, they see the gospel put on display as you come down this middle aisle and take the bread and dip it in the cup. It's our visible declaration that Jesus' death matters. And so Paul says, as he concludes this passage, there's a right response to all of this that we've discussed this morning. He says, whoever Therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That, that you, you're meant to be sobered by this passage to some degree. That communion involves reverence. That we, we don't want to participate in in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner that Paul says to do so could bring about fatherly discipline that could lead to even sickness or death, according to this passage. Verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world, that we do need to understand that this passage is about fatherly discipline, not eternal condemnation or wrath, that Jesus absorbed that on our behalf. 
But yet God will bring about the fatherly discipline of sons and daughters to keep us on the gospel path, to keep us uh, under the banner of, of the very gospel that we proclaim to believe and love. And so what, is, what does Paul mean when he says, don't take communion in an unworthy manner? I mean, you ever, you ever have those weeks where you just freak out before you get out of your chair? You're like, I don't know if I'm doing it right. Like, What are we, what are we supposed to do before we come up and, and do this thing? Well, here's what the gospel would say. The gospel would say that it doesn't mean make sure you're worthy. Jesus wouldn't have had to die if we could be worthy. That's not, that's not what Paul's driving at. In fact, the word unworthy is an adjective describing not the sinner, but the manner in which we come and take communion, the way that we take communion. That's why he says, as he finishes up in verse 33 and 34, so then, right, don't take communion in an unworthy manner. So then what I mean is when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. That Paul's coming back around to this idea that the way you guys are participating in this doesn't align with what you say you believe. Paul's saying as you prepare to take communion, examine yourself to see if you're trusting in the gospel that the Lord's Supper puts on display. Examine your heart. Examine your actions. Examine your willingness to fully surrender to Jesus. The Corinthians, they, they weren't trusting in the gospel. Hence the selfishness, the divisiveness that the gospel never produces. Hence the consumeristic bent, the what's in it for me that the gospel never produces. David Garland says it this way. He says, the Lord's Supper is founded on the sacrificial death of Jesus for others. And the attitude that led him obediently to that death should pervade the supper for Christians ever after. And not just the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but our very lives, even as we, we leave this place, the, the attitude that led Jesus to the cross should pervade our very lives. It's how we know that the gospel is not just cognitive for us, that it's actually made its way into the seed of our affections. So the question as we wrap up this morning is this, are you trusting in the gospel that the Lord's Supper puts on display? Is your life the word of the gospel made visible? Would be another way to ask it. And what that means is that, yes, you have to examine you to some degree, but if you stay there, you're done. You're done for. It only leads to despair or pride if you think you're doing it well. You have to examine you, but you also have to then turn and look to Jesus as you prepare to come take the bread and dip it in the cup. We show this graphic um, at our partnership course. So maybe this is a weird shameless plug. I didn't intend it to be, but partnership course in a couple weeks. Um, and, and this can be helpful even coming into communion week in and week out to have this image in your mind that uh, there came a point in time when if you're a Christian, you became a Christian, you were converted by faith, you trusted in the person and work of Jesus. And then for the rest of our lives, we, we then grow in an awareness of God's holiness and character, who he is. And we grow in an awareness of our sinfulness, just who we are, how deep the sin problem runs. And we do that with every passage as we come in week in and week out. We see God in all of his glory and we see ourselves and, and where he's chiseling us and conforming us more and more into the image of his son. But here's the beauty of what happens as we engage the scriptures in this way. The cross of Jesus Christ doesn't just, just remain mundane until the day we die, but rather it looms larger in our lives so that we see Jesus as that much more glorious as we understand who he really is and what his death really implies based on who we really are. And so as you come and take communion this morning, this is a sweet opportunity to sit with, with the God who created you 
and, and to assess where, where there's a gospel misfiring, where those misfirings are happening for you, and to confess that to the Lord, and then to look away from you at the beauty of the cross and all that Jesus endured for you and all the promises that he secured for you so that you then come forward under the banner of Jesus loves me, this I know, and every one of those promises are mine in Christ. As you come this morning, let that drive you. As you take the bread and dip it in the cup, remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.